0: Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and he is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Jesus once said, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus didn't say we might have trouble. Jesus said, in this world, we will have trouble. We live in a broken world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. Therefore, in this life, we will have trouble. But it's easier. It's easier to face the trouble, the challenges we see coming, isn't it? More pointedly, it's easier to look to God, to rely on the Lord in the battles we choose to fight, in the struggles we're prepared to engage. When David was just a lad, a teenager, He, with the rest of the Israelites, watched as a giant of a man, Goliath, a self-declared enemy of God's people, came on the scene and threatened to destroy them. David, you'll remember, however, unlike the rest of the Israelites, chose to take on this fight. David was prepared to face the challenge of Goliath because he believed, he knew, the Lord was with him. It's easier to face the challenges we see coming. It's easier to look to the Lord to rely on God when we choose our battles. But what happens when you didn't see it coming? The challenge before you, the battle at hand, the fight you weren't ready for? What happens when living in a broken world sends you the unexpected, what you didn't choose, what you didn't want, and what you never, ever anticipated? David went from a lowly shepherd to the Lord's anointed. David elevated from being a court musician to being a decorated and celebrated war hero. David rose from the pastures of Bethlehem to the royal court of Israel as he became the king's son-in-law. But now David is on the run. David is a fugitive. David is a wanted man. David has got a price on his head and the king, his father-in-law, put it there. Just like that. David's whole life got turned upside down. He's homeless, a man without a country, a nomad who's running and hiding for his life. And as he confessed to his best friend, the king's son, Jonathan, in the chapters of this story we looked at last week, David never saw this coming. Out of nowhere, David's life ran headfirst into the unexpected. Not the life he wanted, not the trajectory he planned for, not the battle he chose, not the fight of his life that he was ready for. How will David respond? How do we respond? What happens when we face the unexpected? Let's listen, let's watch, and let's recognize our own human nature in how David responds. Let's brace ourselves to witness the brokenness of our humanity in what happens next. This is 1 Samuel chapter 21.
1: Good morning. First Samuel uh, twenty-one, one through nine. David went to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him, and asked, "Why are you alone? Why is no one with you?" David answered, Ahimelech, the priest. The king charged me with a certain matter, and said to me, "No one is to know anything about your mission, and your instructions." As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual, wherever I set out. The men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord, he was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. David asked, Achimelech, Don't you have a spear or sword here? I haven't brought my sword and or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephold. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Chapters 21 and 22 of 1 Samuel are really one unit, as we'll see. So please keep your Bible open, as we'll take them together. After multiple attempts on his life and sure confirmation that King Saul meant to eliminate him at any cost, David literally heads for the hills. He flees to the village of Nob, which stood on what is now called Mount Scopus, roughly about 2.5 miles southeast of Gibeah, the king's hometown, from where Saul was reigning over all Israel. David's first chosen place of refuge is a town dedicated to worshiping God, the home to 85 priests of the Lord, including the high priest Ahimelech. Now, Ahimelech. Isn't too happy to see David show up by himself. Remember, David was one of the king's generals, so normally he'd be accompanied by soldiers. Is Ahimelech, uh, are the priests in some kind of trouble? Is David? Ahimelech doesn't understand what's going on with David showing up by himself, and David doesn't make things any easier for him when, in answer to Ahimelech's questions, David boldface lies. Instead of telling the truth about running from King Saul, David makes up some story about being on a secret mission for the kingdom. Now, lots of tellers of this story from 1 Samuel are desperate to paint David as blameless here, and they'll argue David deceived the high priest in order to keep him safe from harm. After all, you can't be held responsible for what you don't know, right? It's a common enough rationalization when we don't tell the truth. It's for your own good, It's better that you don't know. I'm doing it to protect you. But any way you tell it, and for whatever reason you do so, a lie is a lie. And lies have consequences, as we will soon see. Part of the reason for David's deception quickly becomes clear. He's hungry. And so David says what he has to say to avoid complications to get some food. You got to do what you got to do when your basic needs are in question, right? Right? For David, the ends justify the means. But David's not yet finished in making requests. No, David, while no longer hungry getting the bread, is still defenseless, and so he asks the priest if he has a spear or a sword handy. Now, in making the second request, David repeats his original lie. David claims he's without a weapon because the king's mission was just so urgent, you know? And surprise, surprise, Ahimelech does have a sword, but not just any sword the sword of Goliath, the very same sword with which David slayed that gigantic Philistine in the Valley of Elah. In fact, it's the only sword Ahimelech has, and it's hard not to believe David didn't know this already. It seems pretty obvious this is also why David lied, so that he could have the sword of Goliath in his possession. And with his newly acquired sword in hand, David departs Nob and goes to Gath. 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 Does that name ring any bells for us? It should, Gath. Because back a few chapters when we were first introduced to Goliath, we learned Goliath was from Gath. So David's next move is to get out of Israel altogether and to head into enemy territory, the land of the Philistines, the hometown of their champion Goliath, whom David defeated and killed in battle. While this may be the last place King Saul will look for him, and while we can sort of get the logic of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I think we can all agree this isn't a very wise move by David. The foolishness of David's scheme is soon revealed when some servants of the Philistine king of Gath who see David, these servants, they quickly recognize him, and they head straight for their king, and they remind him of that hit song, you know, the one that came out of Israel a few years back? Uh, The one after their champion, Goliath, fell. You remember the one about David that went a little something like this? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. It also probably didn't help that David was carrying Goliath's sword into Goliath's hometown. Either way, David has been outed in enemy territory. He is no longer incognito. A wanted man is now a known man. So what does David choose to do next? The man who once trusted the Lord and won the greatest military victory in Israel's history over the Philistines starts acting like a lunatic, a raving madman. David's fear leads him to be deceptive yet again as he pretends to be out of his mind. David buys into the wisdom of a quote we might have heard honesty is the best policy, but insanity is a better defense. David's crazy antics get him summarily escorted out of Gath. He saves his life but he compromises his integrity. And then, as we turn the page into chapter 22, David escapes from Gath and ends up back in Israel, but this time hiding in a place known as the Cave of Adullam. We're told David's family, his fathers and his brothers, got word where David was hiding out, and they went to him there. And they brought along quite the motley crew. They brought along all the refugees from King Saul's reign. We're told all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented. They all went out to David and gave him their allegiance. 400 men in total who would later become David's mighty men, great warriors. But for now, they're just a large bunch of protesters who have aligned themselves with David's situation, that of being on King Saul's bad side. So what's David's next move? His next move is to secure his family's safety in Moab, among the people in the land of David's great-grandmother, Ruth. After doing this and receiving a word of prophetic guidance, however, David leaves his family there and goes back to Israel and makes camp in the forests of Judah. Sadly, the story doesn't end here, as the rest of chapter 22 returns us to the priests of Nob, all the way back to where things started and are now about to tragically fall apart. You see, word has gotten to King Saul about David and the 400 men who have joined him. And as Saul rants about the lack of loyalty among his officials, that no one is telling him what he needs to know about David's whereabouts and plans, in that moment, a man named Doag the Edomite steps forward. Doag the Edomite is Saul's head shepherd and he's got information to share. You see, something we might have missed back at the start of chapter 21, something that David chose to overlook while in Nob, was the presence of this man, Doag the Edomite. Doag witnessed the whole encounter between David and the priest Ahimelech. He saw Ahimelech give David food, the bread. He saw Ahimelech give David a weapon, Goliath's sword. Armed with this information, King Saul immediately sends for Ahimelech and all the priests of Nob. When they all arrive, Saul accuses them of treason for helping David. Now remember, based on what David told him, Ahimelech thought he was participating in a secret mission for the king. Ahimelech believed he was acting out of patriotism, (laughs) honoring king and country. Ahimelech assures Saul of his loyalty, but Saul will hear none of it. David, his enemy? David, his enemy, has been supplied with food and arms? By order of the king, Ahimelech and all 85 of their priests and their families are to be put to death by the sword immediately. But the king's soldiers refuse to comply with this order. They, they will not harm, they will not ke- kill the priests, servants of the Lord God Almighty. So King Saul turns to Doag, the Edomite, a foreigner who bears no such fear or allegiance to Yahweh. And commands Doag to execute his order and annihilate an entire village of people. And Doag, without any hesitation, follows orders. And the once peaceful village of Nob is savagely turned into a ghost town. The dismembered bodies of men, women, children, infants, cattle are strewn all over the ground. It's a horrifying act of genocide that nearly wipes out everyone. But one man, a priest named Abathar, escapes. Abathar alone lives to tell the story of what happened, and Abathar eventually finds David and shares this devastating news. David's reaction at the end of chapter 22 is important in telling. David confesses his responsibility for what happened. Why has Nob now become a graveyard? Who ultimately killed the priests of Nob and their families? David. Saul may have given the contemptible order. Doag may have mercilessly executed the king's command, but David put both of these possibilities in motion the moment he chose to lie. Now, again, some interpreters of this story try to argue, David, again, he lied. He lied to protect Ahimelech. But even if that's true, David's intentions don't excuse the consequences of his lie. And others will then try to suggest, well, David didn't lie as much as he withheld information. But again, isn't that just splitting hairs? Do we accept this as a viable excuse when others withhold necessary information from us? And again, how does this justify the outcome of David's actions? And then finally, and, and it's hard for me to even share this one. There are those who will insist, well, since Jesus points to this part of to part of this story in the gospels, you know, the part where Ahimelech gives David the bread from the tabernacle, well, then that must mean that Jesus approves of that Jesus endorses what David does here, his deception his lie. Really? Seriously. My friends, what we have here is a classic example of trying to make the Bible, trying to make Jesus say something he doesn't say. He would never say. The blood of the innocent is on David's hands by David's own admission. David admits he knew what he was doing. David admits he saw Doag was there while he was doing it. David admits he realized Doag would tell King Saul and thus put Ahimelech and everyone else in jeopardy. But David didn't do anything about it. David didn't try to warn or protect those he lied to. He just left them vulnerable and exposed by his deception. Now hold on, wait a second. Well, we're thinking, what about other biblical examples where we witness people deceive others and their behavior is affirmed? I mean, how about like the midwives in Exodus chapter 1, you know? The midwives who deliberately deceived Pharaoh in order to circumvent his order that all the male Hebrew babies were to be killed? Or what about Rahab in the book of Joshua? What about Rahab, the woman, you remember, who deceives her own people in order to hide the Israelites who were spying on Jericho? I don't want to get lost in the weeds here. Biblically, yes, it seems apparent there are occasions like the above situations when deception is ethically permissible or morally justified. If we survey the Bible, there are cases, they're rare, that are defined by circumstances where someone has forfeited his or her right to know the truth because that person purposes to do something evil or harmful to another person or another group of people. But again, such cases are the exception and not the rule. As a rule, telling the truth rather than lying is what God's word calls us to do. Rightly understood, a lie is the intentional withholding of, or falsification of information that violates someone's moral or legal right to know the truth. Ahimelech the priest had a right to know the truth. David had no moral or legal excuse for lying to him. David had an obligation to fully inform Ahimelech of his situation so that Ahimelech could evaluate the risk and decide what to do. And David didn't didn't lie to protect Ahimelech. David lied to get Ahimelech to do something that Ahimelech might not have otherwise done. Ahimelech didn't have to be deceived by David. David didn't have to deceive Ahimelech. In the telling of his lie, David's life wasn't on the line in that moment. Ahimelech's life was. The life of a whole community was thrown into jeopardy by David's deception. Why did David lie? Because he was afraid. Fear drove him to Nob in the first place. Fear drove him to lie to Ahimelech. I want you to hear this. There's nothing wrong with being afraid. No. Fear is a natural response when we face a threat. It's how we process. It's what we do with our fear that matters. If we let our fear drive us, fear can make us desperate. Why did David lie? Because he got Desperate. Desperation drove David to take Goliath's sword. Desperation drove David to seek refuge in the hands of the enemy. Why did David lie? Because in that moment, David trusted in himself rather than the Lord. This gets to the heart of the matter. The point of this message is not for us to internally debate in order to find license for wiggling our way around the truth on the basis of some ethical or moral loophole. No, Lying and deception here are manifestations of the problem. The problem is when our fear and our desperation lead us to look to ourselves rather than look to the Lord. Facing the unexpected, what he never anticipated or planned for, fearing that Saul is out to kill him and desperate to escape, to put more ground between him and the one step he believes he is away from death, David desperately fights for his life. Rather than remembering, seeking, trusting, and abiding in the Lord who's been fighting for David every step of the way thus far. How many times had the Lord already provided for David? Did David need to lie just to get some food? How many times had the Lord shown himself to be with David in battle? Did David need to lie in order to take hold of Goliath's sword? How many times had the Lord proved himself to be David's refuge? Did David need to become so desperate that he had no choice but to find sanctuary among the enemies of Israel? As David held Goliath's sword, he should have remembered how he came to win it. David's victory over that seemingly impossible obstacle didn't come by his hand through deception and guile, the Lord gave David the victory. And David took hold of that victory through faith, by boldly trusting God with the battle and its consequences. But as David now finds himself in the wilderness, initially cut off from his family and friends, facing the unexpected, he acts like a person who's run out of options. Giving in to fear and desperation, David's lost sight of the one who's always provided for him the one who's always been with him in the battle, the one who's always proved to be David's shelter from the storm. And all of David's efforts to look out for his own interests, to protect himself, to save his own life with little white lies and convincing deceptions, they don't make things any better. They leave only a horrific wake of bloodshed and a guilty and shamed conscience. Beloved, what happened to David can happen to any of us. But perhaps we're not there yet. Perhaps we're still thinking, yes, but David's life was in danger. David's deception, David's lie was an act of self-preservation. And is self-preservation really such a bad thing? I mean, aren't we created with an incredibly strong and natural God-given instinct or inclination to survive, to preserve our lives? Of course. Of course it's logical and it's right to be mindful of our health and our well-being, In fact, the Bible commands that we do so. Self-preservation is a good thing. Tying our shoelaces, looking both ways before crossing the street, walking and not running with sharp objects, getting vaccinated. These are all good practices of self-preservation. Self-preservation in and of itself is not wrong. But when our self-preservation becomes our ultimate thing, this is when we have a problem. I was a lifeguard for a brief stint of my life. During my training, I learned a drowning person, in an effort to save themselves, will push anyone in their vicinity vicinity, under the water in order to stay afloat. My friends, when fear and desperation overtake us, when self-preservation becomes our highest end, we will drown whoever is closest by in order to save our own life. This chapter in David's life is an insight into what happens when we live apart from the Lord's direction, when we operate out of our fear rather than our trust in the Lord, when we convince ourselves that we have to save ourselves, when we tell ourselves that our lives are in our hands alone, that we have to take matters in our own hands, when we look out for our own self-interest and it eclipses being mindful, being receptive to God's interests to the Lord's promise that he alone can provide what we need. In these moments, the leading and wisdom of the Spirit becomes replaced by human reason alone. Our instinct for self-preservation leads us to believe and to self-justify we can only secure our own well-being at the cost, at the expense of others. Apart from abiding in the Word and the Spirit of God, we rationalize whatever serves our interests, even if it puts others in harm's way. We do what's wrong and we tell ourselves, it's all right, it was necessary, we didn't have any other choice, and other people get hurt and pay the price. Certainly, all that we've been through in this last year, not just in terms of the pandemic, but in the midst of the racial, economic, political, and global tensions that we continue to experience, have proven this to be true. Lives have been lost How many lives have been lost in this last year? How many lives continue to be sacrificed, all because of the lies we tell ourselves? Like, might makes right, or the ends justify the means, or, you know, everyone just gets what they deserve, or I'm not my brother or my sister's keeper. All because of the lies that we actively or passively propagate that our safety, that our comfort, that our provision, that our plans, even our very lives, are more of a priority than the just and equitable treatment of all persons. When we can convince ourselves to put an asterisk by doing right, if doing right will bring us personal inconvenience, hardship, or pain, when we do that, then we aren't loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. We are just loving ourselves at the expense of our neighbor. Some Christians, Some Christians believe or have been told, well, since they believe in Jesus, because they come to church, life will now be free from any hardship or struggle or pain. But if we truly know Jesus, anybody who's committed to the journey of actually following Christ understands this life of faith is not a get-rich-quick scheme, one of health, wealth, and prosperity. Following God means being transformed by the Lord, being changed from whom we have been, to the best version of ourselves that we can become in Christ. And change means conflict, challenge, struggle, and yes, pain. To say the Lord always provides what we need does not mean the Lord protects us from hardship or suffering when we step out in faith. Because what is best for us, what's best for the kingdom of God, might be something very painful for us, even lethal. Putting to death some former way of thinking or living, which we liked, or even taking our earthly life itself. But thanks to Jesus, this is the gospel, death has taken on a new meaning. Death is never our end. In Christ, whatever seeks to kill us, by the promise of the resurrection, it will only make us stronger. We may be hard pressed on every side, but we will not be crushed. We may be perplexed, but we will never be in despair. We may be persecuted, but we will never be abandoned. We may be struck down, but we will not be destroyed. My friends, living by faith is unnecessary. Living by faith is unnecessary when we believe we are in control, when the shape and direction of our lives is what we expected, what we planned for, what we want but we all come to that proverbial fork in the road when we face the unexpected, when we encounter what was unplanned, when we come to grips with embracing what we didn't want to happen, when we discover that we are not ultimately in control. And these are the moments when either we try to do whatever we have to do in order to survive, or we choose to live by faith Faith that God gives us in Christ, but faith in following Jesus that asks us to forego safety, security, comfort, and even our lives. Trusting that God will work all things together for our good. Committing to live the Lord's way even when life isn't going our way. Holding on to God's promise of a full and abundant life, not as some future fantasy, but an eternal reality being realized in the here and now. Jesus once put it this way. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whatever it is you're facing right now, whatever it is, especially whatever is unexpected in your life right now, unplanned for, maybe even unwanted, believe and trust the Lord is with you and for you. You are not alone. And you don't have to go it alone. Beloved, faith is like a muscle. It's got to be worked If we want our faith to grow, we have to exercise it. We have to step out in faith. Our God-given faith flutters and can even flounder whenever we try to save ourselves. When our self-interest, our own self-interest, is all that we live for, faith becomes muted and we slowly die inside, even as we inflict immeasurable wounds on the very people God has called us to love. But when we lay down the supremacy of our own self interest and step out in faith, we find the courage. We find the strength we need, not just to survive, but to thrive, to flourish, and to show the world the truth of God's presence and promises. The same Spirit of Christ that dwells inside of us, giving us faith, enlarges that faith with each step of abiding obedience we take in following Jesus one moment. One day at a time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God.
0: If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.